0: Hello, I'm working on a project, I think I found where we became the most brainwashed in all of this. The drama, the fear, I've been calling it my cabin in the woods theory, excuse me, but it all makes more sense now. The cabin in the woods to me means um, we're kind of in cabins in the woods, Um, we don't really quite know who's out there, the lights are starting to flicker. Later that night, they go out, start to see a few eyes in the windows. Cabin in the woods, that's what we've been programmed with. Matter of fact, there's been some very famous stories that led us here. A story about this girl named Kitty. Kitty was a very famous story in New York. And what happened was, was that it was a story that set the drama in the 60s to the fact that we may have somebody after us, but nobody's going to help us. Kitty was an interesting story. Of course, she was a little tranny, but Kitty was... Stabbed outside of a New York um, bunch of high-rises, and only one person heard Kitty's cries, and that person yelled out, Hey, leave her alone. Knock it off. Which allowed Kitty to escape from the murderer, but Kitty didn't get far. She stumbled into the next doorway, and the murderer got her in the back with a knife again. Yeah, that's how they've been setting us up with this kind of drama, and it relates to film noir, And interestingly enough, they did a very early testing of this on all of us in the radio years. They did a show called The War of the Worlds in 1938. It was by Orson Welles. Now, the Orson Welles, the actor, is not the same Orson Welles, the author. The War of the Worlds is a science fiction novel by English author H. G. Wells, first serialized in 1897 by Pearson's Magazine in the UK and by Cosmopolitan Magazine in the United States. The magazine's first appearance in hardcover, the novel—excuse me—first appearance in hardcover was in 1898, okay, in London. Written between 1895 and 1897. Now, this is what they say. It could have been written in the last 100 years for all we know, but that's pretty close to the last 100 years or so, so we'll probably take this as the truth. The novel is the first-person narrative of both an unnamed protagonist in Surrey and his younger brother in London as southern England is invaded by Martians. The novel is one of the most commented-on works in the science fiction canon. The plot has been related to invasion literature of the time. Invasion literature, got that right? Always invasion, the cabin in the woods. The novel has been variously interpreted as a commentary on evolutionary theory, British imperialism, and generally Victorian superstitions, fears, and prejudices. Wells said that the plot arose from a discussion with his brother Frank about the catastrophic effect of the british on the indigenous tasmanians what would happen he wondered if martians did to britain what the british had done to the tasmanians at the time of the publication it was classified as scientific romance like well's earlier novel the time machine the war of the world war of the worlds has been both popular it's never been out of print and influential spawning half a dozen feature films Radio dramas, a record album, various comic book adaptations, a number of television series and sequels, or parallel parallel stories by other authors. It is most memorably dramatized in a 1938 radio program directed and starring Orson Welles, not related, that allegedly caused public panic among listeners who did not know the Martian invasion was fictional. The novel has even influenced the work of scientists, here's where it gets interesting, notably Robert H. Goddard, who, inspired by the book, he helped develop both the liquid-fueled rocket and multi-stage rocket, which resulted in the Apollo 11 moon landing 71 years later so this guy got the idea about the apollo apollo landing from the war of the worlds okay whatever they want to say here right so the world the war of the worlds is an episode of the american radio drama anthology at the mercury theater it was called the mercury theater on the air okay it was directed and narrated by actor and future filmmaker Orson Welles, adapting H. G. Wells' book. It was performed and broadcast live as a Halloween episode at 8 p.m. on Sunday, October 30th, 1938, over the Columbia Broadcasting Radio Network. The episode became famous for causing panic among its listening audience, though the scale of panic is disputed, as the program had relatively few listeners. (laughs) The one-hour program began with the theme music for the Mercury Theater on the air, and an announcement that the evening show was an adaptation of the War of the Worlds. Orson Welles then read a prologue, which was closely based on the opening of H.G. Wells' novel, modified slightly to move the story setting to 1939. For about the next 20 minutes, the broadcast was presented on a typical evening of radio programming, being interrupted by a series of news bulletins. The first few news flashes occur during the presentation of live music, and describe this a series of odd explosions observed on mars followed by a seemingly unrelated p- report of an unusual object flying on a farm in grover's mill new jersey that's where he adapted it to 38 cause this was done in the uk the music program returns briefly before being interrupted by a live report from grover's mill where police officials and a crowd of curious onlookers have surrounded the strange cylindrical object that fell from the sky. The situation escalates when Martians emerge from the cylinder and attack using a heat ray, which which the panicked reporter at the scene describes until his radio feed abruptly goes dead. This is followed by a rapid series of increasingly alarming new news updates detailing a devastating alien invasion taking place around the country, and the futile efforts of the U.S. military to stop it. Military to stop it. Matter of fact, the military will get to sack pretty soon because, um, yeah, they're pretty invested in the space stuff. The first portion of the show climaxes with another live report from a Manhattan rooftop as giant Martian war machines release clouds of poisonous smoke across New York City. The reporter mentions in passing that Martian cylinders have landed all over the country as he describes desperate New Yorkers fleeing and dropping like flies. The smoke inexorably approaching his location. Eventually he coughs and falls silent, and the lone ham operator is heard mournfully calling, is anyone there on the air? Is anyone anyone? With no response. Only then did the program take its first break, a full 38 minutes after Well's introduction. The second half of the show shifts to a conventional radio drama format, which follows a survivor. Pay attention to these formats because I'll be talking about that very, very soon because this unlocks a key to our demise. The second half of the show shifts to a conventional radio drama format which follows a survivor, played by Wells, dealing with the aftermath of the invasion and the ongoing Martian occupation of Earth. The final segment lasts for about 16 minutes, and as in the original novel, it concludes with the revelation that the Martians have been defeated by microbes rather than by humans. The broadcast ends with a brief out-of-character announcement by Wells in which he cheerfully compares the show to dressing up at a sheep, jumping out of a bush and saying, Boo! Wells War of the Words broadcast, this is Orson Wells, has become famous for supposedly tricking some of the listeners into believing that a Martian invasion was actually taking place due to the breaking news style of storytelling employed in the first half of the show. <laughs> you'll see you'll see when you listen to the thing that breaking news part was very effective. The illusion of realism was furthered because Mercury Theater on the Air was a sustaining program without commercial interruptions. So they didn't typically have commercials. So the first break in the drama came after Martian war machines were described as devastating New York City. Popular legend holds that some of the radio audience may have been listening to The Chase and Sanborn Hour with Edgar Bergen and tuned into The War of the Worlds during a musical interlude, thereby missing the clear introduction indicating that the show was a work of science fiction. However, contemporary research suggests that this happened only, I don't think, maybe they're backpedaling with these rare instances, How they would know this back in thirty-eight? somebody's guessing, okay? So, in the days after the adaptation, this radio show in 1938, widespread outrage was expressed in the media. (laughs) The media, there's always them talking about them, right? The program's news bulletin format was described as deceptive by some newspapers and public figures leading to an outcry against the broadcasters and calls for regulations by the Federal Communications Commission. Nevertheless, the episode secured Wells' fame as a dramatist. Boy, I bet it did. Yeah, tricking us a million different ways. Anyway, I'll be back in a little bit with this other part of this thing. Um, it, the, the complete show will be airing right now. Enjoy it. Goodbye for now. <music>
1: We know now that in the early years of the 20th century, this world was being watched closely by intelligences greater than man's, yet as mortal as his own. We know now that as human beings busied themselves about their various concerns, they were scrutinized and studied, perhaps almost as narrowly as a man with a microscope might scrutinize the transient creature's that swarm and multiply in a drop of water. With infinite complacence, people went to and fro over the earth about their little affairs, serene in the assurance of their dominion over this small, spinning fragment of solar driftwood, which by chance or design, man has inherited out of the dark mystery of time and space. Yet across an immense ethereal gulf, minds that are to our minds as ours are to the beasts in the jungle, intellects, vast, cool, and unsympathetic, regarded this earth with envious eyes and slowly and surely drew their plans against us. In the 39th year of the 20th century came the great disillusionment. Near the end of October, business was better. The war scare was over. More men were back at work. Sales were picking up. On this particular evening, October 30th, the Crosley service estimated that 32 million people were listening in on radios.
2: 24 hours, not much change in temperature. A slight atmospheric disturbance of undetermined origin is reported over Nova Scotia, causing a low-pressure area to move down rather rapidly over the northeastern states, bringing a forecast of rain accompanied by winds of light gale force. Maximum temperature, 66, minimum 48. This weather report comes to you from the government weather Bureau. We take you now to the Mer- Meridian Room in the Hotel Park Plaza in downtown New York, where you will be entertained by the music of Raymond Raquello and his orchestra. <laughs>
3: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. From the Meridian Room in the Park Plaza Hotel in New York City, we bring you the music of Raymond Raquello and his orchestra. With a touch of the Spanish, Raymond Raquello leads off with La Campancita.
4: like a jet of blue flame shot from a gun, unquote. We now return you to the music of Ramon Raquello, playing for you in the meridian room of the Park Plaza Hotel, situated in downtown New York.
3: Now a tune that never loses favor, the ever-popular Stardust, Raymond Raquello and his orchestra.
4: We are ready now to take you to the Princeton Observatory at Princeton, where Carl Phillips, our commentator, will interview Professor Richard Pearson, famous astronomer. We take you now to Princeton, New Jersey. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Carl Phillips speaking to you from the Observatory at Princeton.
5: I'm standing in a large semicircular room, pitch black except for an oblong split in the ceiling. Through this opening, I can see a sprinkling of stars that cast a kind of frosty glow over the intricate mechanism of the huge telescope. The ticking sound you hear is the vibration of the clockwork. Professor Pearson stands directly above me on a small platform, peering through the giant lens. I will ask you to be patient, ladies and gentlemen, during any delay that may arise during our interview. Besides a ceaseless watch of the heavens, Professor Pearson may be interrupted by telephone or other communication. During this period, he is in constant touch with the astronomical centers of the world. Professor, may I begin our questions?
1: (coughs) Any time, Mr. Phillips.
5: Professor, would you please tell our radio audience exactly what you see as you observe the planet Mars through your telescope?
1: Nothing unusual at the moment, Mr. Phillips. A red disc swimming in a blue sea. Transverse stripes across the disk. Quite distinct now, because Mars happens to be at the point nearest the Earth, in opposition, as we call it.
5: In your opinion, what do these transverse stripes signify, Professor
1: Not canals, I can assure you, Mr. Phillips. Although, that's the popular conjecture of those who imagine Mars to be inhabited. From a scientific viewpoint, the stripes are merely the result of atmospheric conditions peculiar to the planet.
5: Then you're quite convinced, as a scientist that living intelligence as we know it does not exist on Mars?
1: I say the chances against it are a thousand to one. And yet,
5: how do you account for these gas eruptions occurring on the surface of the planet at regular intervals?
1: Phillips, I cannot account for
5: it. By the way, Professor, for the benefit of our listeners, how far is Mars from the Earth?
1: Approximately 40 million miles.
5: (laughs) Well, that seems a safe enough distance. Uh, Just a moment, ladies and gentlemen. Someone has just handed Professor Pearson a message... While he reads it, let me remind you that we we are speaking to you from the observatory in Princeton, New Jersey, where we are interviewing the world-famous astronomer, Professor Pearson. Uh, one moment, please. Professor Pearson has passed me a message which he has just received. Uh, Professor, may I read the message to the listening audience? Certain name. Mr. Ladies and gentlemen, I shall read you a wire addressed to Professor Pearson from Dr. Gray of the Natural History Museum, New York. Quote, 9.15 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Seismograph registered shock of almost... Earthquake intensity occurring within a radius of 20 miles of Princeton. Please investigate. Signed, Lloyd Gray, Chief of Astronomical Division. Unquote. Professor Pearson, could this occurrence possibly have something to do with the disturbances observed on the planet Mars?
1: Uh, Hardly, Mr. Phillips. This is probably a meteorite of unusual size, and its arrival at this particular time is merely a coincidence. However, we shall conduct a search as soon as daylight permits.
5: Thank you, Professor. Ladies and gentlemen, for the past ten minutes... We've been speaking to you from the observatory at Princeton, bringing you a special interview with Professor Pearson, noted astronomer. This is Carl Phillips speaking. We are returning you now to our New York studio.
3: Ladies and gentlemen, here is the latest bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News, Toronto, Canada. Professor Morris of Macmillan University reports observing a total of three explosions on the planet Mars between the hours of 7.45 p.m. and 9.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. This confirms earlier reports received from American observatories. Now nearer home comes a special bulletin from Trenton, New Jersey. It is reported that at 8.50 p.m. a huge flaming object, believed to be a meteorite, fell on a farm in the neighborhood of Grover's Mill, New Jersey, 22 miles from Trenton. The flash in the sky was visible within a radius of several hundred miles, and the noise of the impact was heard as far north as Elizabeth. We have dispatched a special mobile unit to the scene, and we'll have our commentator, Carl Phillips, give you a word picture of the scene as soon as he can reach there from Princeton. In the meantime, we take you to the Hotel Martinet in Brooklyn, where Bobby Millette and his orchestra are offering a program of dance music. Take you now to Grover's Mill, New Jersey.
5: Ladies and gentlemen, this is Carl Phillips again, out at the Wilmot Farm, Grover's Mill, New Jersey. Professor Pearson and myself made the 11 miles from Princeton in 10 minutes. Well, I hardly know where to begin, so paint for you a word picture of a strange scene before my eyes like something out of a modern Arabian night. Well, I just got here. I haven't had a chance to look around yet. I guess that's it. Yes, I guess that's the thing directly in front of me. Half buried in a vast pit. Must have struck with terrific force. The ground is covered with splinters of a tree. It must have struck on its way down. But I can see the object itself doesn't look very much like a meteor. At least not the meteors I've seen. It looks more like a huge cylinder. Has a diameter of... um, um, What would you say, Professor Pearson? that? Uh, what would you say? Uh, what's the diameter of this? About
6: 30 yards. About
5: 30 yards. The metal on the sheath is... Well, I've never seen anything like it. The color is sort of yellowish white. It's curious. Spectators now are pressing close to the object in spite of the efforts of the police to keep them back. they uh, getting in front of my line of... Video, uh, uh, would you mind standing one side, please? While the police are pushing the crowd back. Here's Mr. Wilmoth, owner of the farm here. He may have some interesting facts to add. Mr. Wilmoth... Uh, Would you please tell the radio audience as much as you remember... of this rather unusual visitor that dropped in your backyard? Uh, Step closer, please. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Mr. Wilmot.
7: Well, I was listening uh, to the radio... uh, Closer and louder, please. Pardon me? Uh, Louder, please, closer. Yes. I was listening to the radio and kind of drowsing. That professor fellow was talking about Mars... so I was half chosen and
5: half... Yes, yes, Mr. Wilmot, and uh, then what happened?
7: Well, as I was saying, I was listening to the radio kind of halfway. Yes,
5: Mr. Wilmot. And then you
7: saw something. Not first off. I heard something.
5: And what did you hear?
7: A hissing sound like this. Uh, kind of like a Fourth of July rocket.
5: Yes, then what?
7: I turned my head out the window and would have sworn I was asleep and dreaming. Yes. I seen a kind of greenish streak and then zingo. Something smacked the ground, knocked me clear out of my chair. Well, were you frightened, Mr. Wilmot? Well, I ain't quite sure. I reckon I was kind of riled. <laughs>
5: well, thank you, Mr. Wilmer. Thank you very much. Yeah. You want me to talk to No, that's quite on. all right. That's plenty. Ladies and gentlemen, you've just heard Mr. Wilmoth, owner of the farm, where this thing has fallen. I wish I could convey the atmosphere, the background of this fantastic scene. Hundreds of cars are parked in a field in back of us, and the police are trying to rope off the roadway leading into the farm, but it's no use. They're breaking right through. Cars' headlights throw an enormous spotlight on the pit where the objects have buried. Now, some of the more uh, daring souls uh, uh, now uh, are yeah, venturing uh, near uh, the edge. The silhouettes stand out against the metal chains. Like on. <laughs> One man wants to touch the thing. He's on. having an argument yeah. with the policeman. Now, uh, the policeman wins. Now, ladies and gentlemen, there's something I haven't mentioned in all this excitement, but it's becoming more distinct. Perhaps you've caught it already on your radio. Listen, please. Do you hear it? It's a curious humming sound that seems to come from inside the object. I'll uh, move the microphone nearer. Here. Now we're not more than twenty-five feet away. Uh, can you hear it now, uh, Professor Pearson?
1: Yes, sir. Uh, can
5: you tell us the meaning of that scraping noise inside the thing? Uh,
1: possibly the unequal cooling of its surface.
5: I say, do you still think it's a meteor, Professor?
1: What do you think? The uh, metal casing is definitely extraterrestrial. Uh, not found on this earth. Friction with the earth's atmosphere usually tears holes in a meteorite. This thing is smooth and... You can see a cylindrical shape.
5: Something's happening. Ladies and gentlemen, this is terrific. This end of the thing is beginning to flake off. The top is beginning to rotate like a screw and this thing must be hollow.
8: He's moving! Keep back! back guy! Keep back! guy! Keep those idiots back! Keep back! guy! Keep those idiots back! Take off! The top blue, go back!
5: Ladies and gentlemen, this is the most terrifying thing I, I've ever witnessed. Wait a minute. Someone calling someone or something, I can see, tearing out of that black hole, two l- luminous disks. The eyes, it might be a face, might be almost a that heavens, something wriggling out of the shadow like a gray snake. Now it's another one, and another one, and another one. They look like tentacles to me. Oh, yeah, I can see the thing's body. Now it's large. It's large as a bear. It it's like wet leather, but
1: that face.
5: Ladies and gentlemen, it's indescribable. I can hardly force myself to keep looking at it. It's so awful. The eyes are black and they gleam like a serpent in the mouth. is kind of V-shaped with saliva dripping from its rimless lips. It seems to oh, quiver and pulsate. And the monster or whatever it is can hardly move. It seems weighed down by uh, possibly gravity or something. The thing's rising up now and the crowd falls back. It seems plenty to, most extraordinary experience, gentlemen. Like I can't find words. And, well, I'll pull this microphone with me as I talk. I'll have to stop the description until I can take a new position. Hold on, will you, please? I'll be right back in a minute.
4: We are bringing you an eyewitness account of what's happening on the Wilmoth Farm, Grover's Mill, New Jersey.
5: Conferring with someone. Can't quite see who. Ah, oh, yes, I believe it's Professor Pearson. Yes, it is. Now, now they've parted, and the professor moves around one side, studying the object while the captain and two policemen advance with something in their hands. I can see it now. It's a white handkerchief tied to a pole. Flag of truce. If those creatures know what that means, what anything means. Wait a minute. Something's happening. A humped shape is rising out of the pit. I can make out a small beam of light against a mirror. Seth. There's a jet of flame springing from the mirror and it oh, leaps right there. at the advancing men. It strikes them head on. Oh, Lord, lords are turning into flames. Ah! Now the whole field's caught up by the woods of ah! fire the, the gas tank tanks and the automobiles are spreading everywhere. Coming this way now, about 20 yards to my right.
4: Ladies and gentlemen, due to circumstances beyond our control, we are unable to continue the broadcast from Grover's Mill. Evidently, there's some difficulty with our field transmission. However, we will return to that point at the earliest opportunity. In the meantime, we have a late bulletin from San Diego, California. Professor indelkoffer speaking at a dinner of the California Astronomical Society, expressed the opinion that the explosions on Mars are undoubtedly nothing more than severe volcanic disturbances on the surface of the planet. We continue now with our piano interlude.
3: Ladies and gentlemen, I've just been handed a message that came in from Grover's Mill by telephone. Just one moment, please. At least 40 people, including six state troopers, lie dead in a field east of the village of Grover's Mill, their bodies burned and distorted beyond all possible recognition. The next voice you hear will be that of Brigadier General Montgomery Smith, commander of the state militia at Trenton, New Jersey.
8: I have been requested by the governor of New Jersey to place the counties of Mercer and Middlesex as as far west as Princeton and uh, east to Jamesburg under martial law. No one will be permitted to enter this area except by special pass issued by state or military authorities. Four companies of state militia are proceeding from Trenton to Grover's Mill and uh, will aid in the evacuation of homes within the range of military operations. Thank you.
3: You have just been listening to General Montgomery Smith, commanding the state militia at Trenton. In the meantime, further details of the catastrophe at Grover's Mill are coming in. The strange creatures, after unleashing their deadly assault, crawled back in their pit and made no attempt to prevent the efforts of the firemen to recover the bodies and extinguish the fire. The combined fire departments of Mercer County are fighting the flames which menace the entire countryside. We have been unable to establish any contact with our mobile unit at Grover's Mill, but we hope to be able to return you there at the earliest possible moment. In the meantime, we take you to... Just one moment, please. Ladies and gentlemen, I have just been informed that we have finally established communication with an eyewitness of the tragedy. Professor Pearson has been located at a farmhouse near Grover's Mill where he has established an emergency observation post. As a scientist, he will give you his explanation of the calamity. The next voice you hear will be that of Professor Pearson, brought to you by direct wire. Professor Pearson.
1: Of the creatures in the rocket cylinder at Grover's Mill, I can give you no authoritative information, either as to their nature, their origin, or their purposes here on Earth of their destructive instrument, I might venture some conjectural explanation. For want of a better term, I shall refer to the mysterious weapon as a heat ray. It's all too evident that these creatures have scientific knowledge far in advance of our own. It's my guess that in some way they are able to generate an intense heat in a chamber of practically absolute non-conductivity. This intense heat they project in a parallel beam against any object they choose by means of a polished parabolic mirror of unknown composition, much as the mirror of a lighthouse projects a beam of light. That that is my conjecture of the origin of the heat ray.
3: Thank you, Professor Pearson. Ladies and gentlemen, here is a bulletin from Trenton. It is a brief statement informing us that the charred body of Carl Phillips has been identified in a Trenton hospital. Now here's another bulletin from Washington, D.C., The office of the director of the National Red Cross reports 10 units of Red Cross emergency workers have been assigned to the headquarters of the state militia, stationed outside of Grover's Mill, New Jersey. Here's a bulletin from State Police, Princeton Junction. The fires at Grover's Mill and vicinity are now under control. Scouts report all quiet in the pit, and there is no sign of life appearing from the mouth of the cylinder. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a special statement from Mr. Harry McDonald,
7: vice president in charge of operations. We have received a request from the state militia of Trenton to place at their disposal our entire broadcasting facilities. In view of the gravity of the situation, and believing that radio has a responsibility to serve in the public interest at all times, we are turning over our facilities to the state militia at Trenton. We take you now to the field headquarters of the
3: state militia near Grover's Mill, New Jersey.
6: This is Captain Lansing of the Signal Corps, attached to the state militia, now engaged in military operations in the vicinity of Grover's Mill. Situation arising from the reported presence of certain individuals of unidentified nature is now under complete control. The cylindrical object, which lies in a pit directly below our position, surrounded on all sides by eight battalions of infantry, without heavy field pieces, but adequately armed with rifles and machine guns. All cause for alarm, if such cause ever existed, is now entirely unjustified. Things, whatever they are, do not even venture to poke their heads above the pit. I can see their hiding place plainly in the glare of the searchlights here. With all their reported resources, these creatures can scarcely stand up against heavy machine gun fire. Anyway, it's an interesting outing for the troops. I can make out their cocky uniforms, crossing back and forth in front of the lights. Looks almost like a real war. There appears to be some slight smoke in the woods bordering the Millstone River. Probably fire started by campers. Well, uh, we ought to see some action soon. One of the companies is deploying on the left flank. A quick thrust and it'll all be over. Now, wait a minute, I... See something on top of the cylinder. Oh, no, it's nothing but a shadow. Now the troops are on the edge of the Wilmoth farm. 7,000 armed men closing in on an old metal tube. A tub, rather. Well, wait, that wasn't a shadow, it's something moving. Solid metal, kind of a shield-like affair, rising up out of the cylinder. Going higher and higher. What? It's... it's standing on legs. Actually rearing up on a sort of metal framework. Now it's reaching above the trees and the searchlights are on it. Hold on.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, I have a grave announcement to make. Incredible as it may seem, both the observations of science and the evidence of our eyes lead to the inescapable assumption that those strange beings who landed in the Jersey farmlands tonight are the vanguard of an invading army from the planet Mars. The battle which took place tonight at Grove of Mills has ended in one of the most startling defeats ever suffered by an army in modern times. 7,000 men armed with rifles and machine guns pitted against a single fighting machine of the invaders from Mars. 120 known survivors. The rest strewn over the battle area from Grover's Mill to Plainsboro, crushed and trampled to death under the metal feet of the monster, or burned to cinders by its heat ray. The monster is now in control of the middle section of New Jersey and has effectively cut the state through its center. Communication lines are down from Pennsylvania to the Atlantic Ocean. Railroad tracks are torn and service from New York to Philadelphia discontinued except routing some of the trains through Allerton and Phoenixville. Highways to the north, south, and west are clogged with frantic human traffic. Police and army reserves are unable to control the mad flight. By morning, the fugitives will have swelled Philadelphia, Camden, and Trenton. It is estimated to twice their normal population. Martial law prevails throughout New Jersey and eastern Pennsylvania. At this time, we take you to Washington for a special broadcast on the national emergency. The Secretary of the Interior...
6: ...citizens of the nation... ...I shall not try to conceal the gravity of the situation that confronts the country... ...nor the concern of your government in protecting the lives and property of its people. However, I wish to impress upon you... ...private citizens and public officials... ...all of you, the urgent need of calm and resourceful action. Fortunately, this formidable enemy is still confined to a comparatively small area. And we may place our faith in the military forces to keep them there. In the meantime, placing our faith in God, we must continue the performance of our duties, each and every one of us, so that we may confront this destructive adversary with a nation united, courageous, and consecrated to the preservation of human supremacy on this earth. I thank you.
2: You have just heard the Secretary of the Interior speaking from Washington. Bulletins too numerous to read are piling up in the studio here. We're informed that the central portion of New Jersey is blacked out from radio communication due to the effect of the heat ray upon power lines and electrical equipment. Here's a special bullet in New York. Cables have been received from English, French, and German scientific bodies offering assistance. Astronomers report continued gas outbursts at regular intervals on the planet Mars. The majority voiced the opinion that the enemy will be reinforced by additional rocket machines. There have been several attempts made to locate Professor Pearson of Princeton, who has observed Martians at close range. It is feared he was lost in the recent battle. Langham Field, Virginia. Scouting planes report three Martian machines visible above treetops, moving north toward Somerville with population fleeing ahead of them. The heat ray is not in use, although advancing at express train speed, Invaders pick their way carefully. They seem to be making a conscious effort to avoid destruction of cities and countryside. However, they stop to uproot power lines, bridges, and railroad tracks. Their apparent objective is to crush resistance, paralyze communication, and disorganize human society. Here is a bulletin from Basking Ridge, New Jersey. Coon hunters have stumbled on a second cylinder similar to the first, embedded in the Great Swamp 20 miles south of Morristown. Army field pieces are proceeding from Newark to blow up the second invading unit before the cylinder can be opened and the fighting machine rig, They are taking up a position in the foothills of Watchung Mountain. Another another, another bulletin from Langham Field, Virginia. Scouting planes report enemy machines now three in number, increasing speed northward, kicking over houses and trees in their evident haste to form a conjunction with their allies south of Marstown. Machines also sighted by telephone operator east of Middlesex within 10 miles of Plainfield. Here's a bulletin from Winston Field, Long Island. A fleet of army bombers carrying heavy explosives flying north in pursuit of enemy. Scouting planes act as guides. They keep the speeding enemy in sight just a moment, please ladies and gentlemen we've uh, We've run special wires to the artillery line in adjacent villages to give you direct reports from the zone of the advancing enemy. first, we take you to the battery of the twenty second field artillery located in the watching mountains
9: range thirty two meters thirty two meters section thirty nine degrees thirty nine degrees Fire. One hundred and forty yards to the right, sir. Shift range thirty one meters. Thirty-one meters. Projection thirty-seven degrees. Thirty-seven
6: degrees. Fire. Hit sir. Got the tripod of one of them. They're stop.
9: The others are trying to repair it. Quick, get the range. 50 30 meters. 30 meters. Projection 27 degrees. 27 degrees. Fire. Can't see the fell land, sir. Letting off a smoke. What is it?
1: Black smoke, sir. Moving this way.
9: Lying close to the ground. Moving fast. Put on gas masks. Ready to fire. Shift 24 meters. 24 meters. Projection 24 degrees.
6: 24 degrees. Fire. <laughs> can't see, sir. Smoke's coming nearer. Get the range. <coughs> 23 meters. 23 meters. 23
9: meters.
5: 22,
8: <laughs> 22, <laughs> <laughs> Army bombing plane V843 off Bayonne, New Jersey. Lieutenant Bolt commanding eight bombers, reporting to Commander Fairfax, Langham Field. This is Vogue reporting to Commander Fairfax, Langham Field. Enemy tripod machines now in sight. Reinforced by three machines from the Morristown cylinder. Six altogether. One machine partially crippled. Believed hit by shell from army gun in Wachung Mountains. Guns now appear silent. A heavy black fog hanging close to the earth of extreme density, nature unknown. No sign of heat ray. Enemy now turns east, crossing Passaic River into the Jersey Marshes. Another straddles the Pulaski Skyway. Evident objective is New York City. They're pushing down a high-tension power station. Machines are close together now, and we're ready to attack. Plane's circling, ready to strike. A thousand yards, and we'll be over the first. Eight hundred yards. Six hundred. Four hundred. Two hundred. There they go. The giant arm raised. Green flash. Spaying us with flame. Two thousand feet. Engines are giving out. No chance to release bombs. Only one thing left. Drop on them, plane and all. We're diving on the first one. Now the engine's gone. Eight.
1: This is
6: Bayonne, New Jersey, calling Langham Field. Bayonne, New Jersey, calling Langham Field. Come in, please. This is Langham Field. Go ahead. Eight army bombers in engagement with enemy tripod machines over Jersey Plats. Engines incapacitated by heat ray. All crashed. One enemy machine destroyed. Enemy now discharging heavy black smoke in direction of... This
9: is Newark, New Jersey. This is Newark, New Jersey. Warning. Poisonous black smoke pouring in from Jersey Marshes. Reaches South Street. Gas masks useless. Urge population to move into open spaces. Automobiles use routes 7, 23, 24. Avoid congested areas. Smoke now spreading over, over Raymond Boulevard...
5: 2X2L calling CQ, 2X2L calling CQ, 2X2L calling 8X3R. Come in, please. This is 8X3R coming back at 2X2L. As reception. As reception. K, please. Where are you, 8X3R? What's the matter?
9: Where are you?
7: I'm speaking from the roof of Broadcasting Building. I'm speaking from the roof of Broadcasting Building, New York City. The bells you hear are ringing to warn the people to evacuate the city as Martians approach. Estimated in the last two hours, three million people have moved out along the roads to the north. Hutchison River Parkway still kept open for motor traffic bridges to Long Island, hopelessly jammed. All communication with Jersey Shore closed ten minutes ago. No more defenses. Our army is wiped out. Artillery, Air Force, everything wiped out. This may be the last broadcast. We'll stay here to the end. People are holding service here below us in the cathedral. Now I look down the harbor, all, all manner of boats, overloaded with fleeing population, pulling out from docks. Streets are all jammed. Noise and crowds like New Year's Eve in city. Wait a minute, the, the enemy is now in sight above the Palisades. Five five great machines. First one is crossing the river. I can see it from here, wading, wading the Hudson like a man wading through a brook. A bulletin has handed me. Martian cylinders are falling all over the country. One outside of Buffalo, one in Chicago, St. Louis, seem to be timed in space. Now the first machine reaches the shore. He stands watching, looking over the city. Steel cowlish head is even with the skyscrapers. He waits for the others. They rise like a line of new towers on the city's west side. Now they're lifting their metal hands. This is the end now. Smoke comes out, black smoke drifting over the city. People in the streets see it now. They're running toward the East River, thousands of them, dropping in like rats. Now the smoke's spreading faster. It's reached Times Square. People are trying to run away from it, but it's no use. They're falling like flies. Now the smoke's crossing 6th Avenue. Fifth Avenue, a hundred yards away, it's 50 feet.
6: Calling CQ. Two X Two L. Calling CQ. Two X Two L. Calling CQ, New York. Is
1: there anyone on the air? Is there anyone on the
6: air? Is there anyone? Two X Two L.
4: You are listening to a CBS presentation of Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the Air in an original dramatization of The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. The performance will continue after a brief intermission. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells, starring Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the Air.
1: On these notes on paper. I'm obsessed by the thought that I may be the last living man on Earth. I've been hiding in this empty house near Grover's Mill. A small island of daylight cut off by the black smoke from the rest of the world. All that happened before the arrival of these monstrous creatures in the world now seems part of another life. A life that has no continuity with the present. Furtive existence, the lonely derelict who pencils these words on the back of some astronomical notes bearing the signature of Richard Pearson. I look down at my blackened hand and I try to connect them with a professor who lives at Princeton and who on the night of October 20th glimpsed through his telescope an orange splash of light on a distant planet. My wife, My colleagues, my students, my books, my observatory, my my world. Where are they? Did they ever exist? Am I Richard Pearson? What day is it? Do days exist without calendars? With time pass when there are no human hands left to wind the clocks? Writing down my daily life, I tell myself I shall preserve human history between the dark covers of this little book that was meant to record the movements of the stars. But to write, I must live, and to live, I must eat. Find moldy bread in the kitchen and an orange not too spoiled to swallow. Keep watch at the window. Time to time, I catch sight of a Martian above the black smoke. Smoke still holds the house in its black coil, but at length there's a hissing sound, and suddenly I see a Martian mounted on his machine, spraying the air with a jet of steam as if to dissipate the smoke. I watch in a corner as his huge metal legs nearly brush against the house. Exhausted by terror, I fall asleep. Morning. Sun streams in the window. Black cloud of gas is lifted and the scorched meadows to the north look as though a black snowstorm had passed over. them. I venture from the house. I make my way to a road. No traffic. Here in their wrecked car, baggage overturned, a blackened skeleton. Push on north. For some reason I feel safer trailing these monsters than running away from them. And I keep a careful watch. I've seen the Martians feed. Should one of their machines appear over the top of trees, I'm ready to fling myself flat on the earth. Come to a chestnut tree. October. Chestnuts are ripe. Right. All my pockets I just keep it alive. Two days I wander in a vague northerly direction through a desolate world. Finally I notice a living creature. A small red squirrel in a beech tree. I stare at him and wonder. He stares back at me. I believe at that moment the animal and I shared the same emotion. The joy of finding another living being. Bush on north. I find dead cows in a brackish field and beyond the charred ruins of a dairy in the silo. Main standing guard over the wasteland like a lighthouse. Deserted by the sea. Stride the silo, perches a weathercock. The arrow points north. North. Next day, I come to a city. City vaguely familiar in its contours, yet its building strangely dwarfed and leveled off as if... As if a giant had sliced off its highest towers with a capricious sweep of his hand. Reached the outskirts, I found Newark... Newark, undemolished but humbled by some whim of the advancing Martians. Presently, with an odd feeling of being watched, I caught sight of something crouching in a doorway. I made a step towards it. Rose up and became a man. A man armed with a large knife.
7: Stop! Where did you
3: come
1: from? I come from... from many places... A long time ago, from Princeton.
10: Princeton, huh? That's near Grover's Mill. Yes. Grover's Mill. (laughs) There's no food here. This is my country. All this end of town down the river, there's only food for one. Which way are you going?
1: I don't know. I guess I'm looking for people. What was that? Do we hear something just then? No. Only a bird. A live bird. Yeah. You
10: get to know that birds have shadows these days. Hey, we're in the open here. Let's crawl in this doorway here and talk. Have you seen any Martians? No. They're going over to New York. At night, the sky's alive with their lights, just as if people were still living in it daylight, you can't see them. Five days ago, a couple of them carried something big across the flats from the airport. I think they're learning how to fly.
1: Fly? Yeah, yeah fly. Then hmm. well, it's all over with humanity. Stranger, there's still you and I.
10: Two of us left. Yeah, They got themselves in solid. They wrecked the greatest country in the world. Those green stars, they're probably falling somewhere every night. They've only lost one machine. There isn't anything to do. We're done. We're licked. Where were you? You're in a uniform. Yeah, what's left of it. I was in the militia. National Guard. (laughs) That's good. There wasn't any war. Any more than there's war
1: between men and ants. Yes, but we're eatable ants. I found that out. What'll they do to us?
10: I thought it all out. Right now, we're caught as we're wanted. The Martian only has to go a few miles to get a crowd on the run. But they won't keep on doing that, they'll begin catching us systematic, like keeping the best and storing us in cages and things. They haven't begun on us yet. Not begun? Not begun. All that's happened so far is because we don't have sense enough to keep quiet. Bothering them with guns and such stuff and losing our heads and rushing off in crowds. Ah, no, Instead of our... Rushing around blind, we got to fix ourselves up. Fix ourselves up according to the way things are now. Cities, nations, civilization, progress. Yes, but
1: if that's so, what
10: is there to live for? Well, there won't be any more concerts for a million years or so and no nice little dinners at restaurants. If it's amusement you're after, I guess the game's up.
1: What is there left?
10: Life, that's what. I want to live. Yeah, and so do you. We're not going to be exterminated. And I don't mean to be caught either. Tamed and fattened and bred like an ox. What are you going to do? I'm going on. Right under their feet. I got a plan. We men as men we're finished. We don't know enough. We got to learn plenty before we got a chance. We've got to live and keep free while we learn, see? I've thought it all out, see? Well, tell me the rest. Well, it isn't all of us that are made for wild beasts. That's what it's it got, it, it got to be. That's why I watched you. Watched you. All those little office workers that used to live in these houses. They'd be no good. They
5: haven't any stuff in them.
10: They used to run. Run off to work. I've seen hundreds of them running to catch their commuters train in the morning. Afraid they could can if they didn't. Running back at night. Afraid they wouldn't be in time for dinner. Lives insured and a little invested in case of accidents. Yeah, and on Sundays. Worried about the hereafter. Martians, they'll be a godsend for those guys. Nice roomy cages, good food, careful breeding, no worries. Yeah, after a week or so of chasing around the fields on empty stomachs, they'll come and be glad to be caught. You've thought it all out, haven't you? Sure, you bet I have. That isn't all. These Martians are gonna make pets of someone. Train them to do tricks. Who knows, get sentimental over the pet boy who grew up and had to be killed. Yeah. Maybe they'll train to hunt us. Oh, no, it's impossible. Yes, they will. There's men who do it
7: gladly.
1: One of them never comes after me, but. Meantime, you and I and others like us, where are we to live when the Martians own the Earth?
10: I got it all figured out. We live underground. I've been thinking about the sewers. Under New York, there are miles and miles of them. The main ones—they're big enough for anybody. Then there's cellars, vaults, underground storerooms, railway tunnels, subways. You're to see, huh? We've got a bunch of strong men together—no
1: weakness. That rubbish, out. As you meant me to go. All right.
10: Give you a chance,
1: didn't I? Won't quarrel about that. Go on.
10: Well, we got to make safe places for us to stay in, see. Get all the books we can. Science books. That's where men like you come in, see? We raid the museums. We'll even spy on the Martians. May not be so much we have to learn before... Just just imagine this. Four or five of their own fighting machines suddenly start off. Heat rays right and left. Not a Martian in them. Not a Martian in them, see? But men. Men who've learned the way How?
5: May evening in our time. Gee. Imagine having one of them lovely things with a heat ray wide and free. We'd turn it on Martians. We'd turn it on men. We'd bring everybody down on their knees.
1: That's your plan. Yeah. You, me,
10: you morons. We'd own the world. I see. Hey. Hey, what's the matter? Where are you going?
1: Not to your world. Bye, stranger. Well, after parting with the artillerymen, I came at last to the Holland Tunnel. entered that silent tube. Anxious to know the fate of the great city on the other side of the Hudson. Cautiously, I came out of the tunnel and made my way up Canal Street. Reached 14th Street, and there again were black powder and several bodies and an evil... Ominous smell from the gratings of the cellars of some of the houses. I wandered up through the thirties and forties. Stood alone on Times Square. Caught sight of a lean dog running down 7th Avenue with a piece of dark brown meat in his jaws. and A pack of starving mongrels at his heels. Made a wide circle around me as though he feared I might prove a fresh competitor. Walked up Broadway in the direction of that... That strange powder past silent shop windows, displaying their mute wares to empty sidewalks. Past the Capitol Theater, silent, dark. Past a shooting gallery where a row of empty guns faced an arrested line of wooden ducks near Columbus Circle. I noticed models of 1939 motor cars in the showrooms facing empty streets. Over the top of the General Motors building, I watched a flock of black birds circling in the sky hurried on. Suddenly I caught sight of the hood of a Martian machine standing somewhere in Central Park, gleaming in the late afternoon sun. An insane idea. I I, I rushed recklessly across Columbus circle and into the park. I, I climbed a small hill above the pond at 60th Street, and from there I could see, standing in a silent row along the mall, 19 of those great metal titans, their cowls empty, their steel arms hanging listlessly by their sides. I looked in vain for the monsters that inhabit those machines. Suddenly, my eyes were attracted to the immense flock of black birds that hovered directly below me. They circled to the ground, and there before my eyes, stark and silent, lay the Martians with the hungry birds pecking and tearing brown shreds of flesh from their dead bodies. Later, when their bodies were examined in laboratories, it was found that they were killed by the putrefactive and disease bacteria against which their systems were unprepared. Plain, after all, man's defenses had failed by the humblest thing that God, his wisdom, has put upon this earth. Before the cylinder fell, there was a general persuasion that through all the deep of space, no life existed beyond the petty surface of our minute sphere. Now we see further. Dim and wonderful is the vision I've conjured up in my mind of life spreading slowly from this little seed bed of the solar system throughout the inanimate vastnesses of sidereal space, but a remote dream, maybe. Maybe that the destruction of the Martians is only a reprieve to them and not to us. The future ordained, perhaps. Ah, strange it now seems to sit in my peaceful study, Princeton, writing down this last chapter of the record, begun at a deserted farm in Grover's Mill. Strange to watch children playing in the streets. Strange to see young people strolling on the green where the new spring grass heals the last black scars of a bruised earth. Strange to watch the sightseers Enter the museum where the dissembled parts of a Martian machine are kept on public view. Strange when I recall the time when I first saw it. Bright and clean cut, hard and silent under the dawn of that last great day. This is Orson Welles, ladies and gentlemen, out of character to assure you that the war of the worlds has no further significance than as the holiday offering it was intended to be, the Mercury Theater's own radio version of dressing up in a sheet and jumping out of a bush and saying boo. Starting now, we couldn't soap all your windows and steal all your garden gates by tomorrow night, so we did the best next thing. We annihilated the world before your very ears and utterly destroyed the CBS. You will be relieved, I hope, to learn that we didn't mean it and that both institutions are still open for business. So goodbye, everybody, and remember, please, for the next day or so, the terrible lesson you learned tonight. That grinning, glowing, globular invader of your living room is an inhabitant of the pumpkin patch, and if your doorbell rings and nobody's there, that was no Martian. It's Halloween.
4: Tonight, the Columbia Broadcasting System and its affiliated stations, coast to coast, has brought you The War of the World by H.G. Wells, the 17th in its weekly series of dramatic broadcasts featuring Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the air. Next week, we present a dramatization of three famous short stories. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. <laughs>